Okay. Well, good morning once again. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 19. Uh, as If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, firstly, a very warm welcome. It's great to have you with us. We're currently in a series as we look at the seven sayings of Jesus that he said from the cross. And today we come to, I think, what I would refer to as one of the most abused sayings of Jesus. Um, and before we look at this saying, I might just um, put your finger in that passage and turn over to Matthew chapter 12. It's one of the benefits of bringing your Bibles to church. Um, Matthew chapter 12, and I'm going to read from verse 46 to verse 50 to set this in a little bit more of a wider context. It says this, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, with that in mind, would you please turn back to John chapter 19? Ah, thank you. I think I might be okay to hold it. Okay. Yep. Thanks, Jaco. So turning back to John chapter 19, and I'll read from verse 17 through to verse 27. And again, this is God's word. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I think we're on. Yep, great. Most importantly of all, let's pray, shall we? (coughs) Father, what a great joy and delight it is to come together this morning as your people, to corporately worship you. We remember your great promise that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, then there are you in the midst of them. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us this morning. And we pray that as we sit quietly at your feet now, that you would feed us on your word. By your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see, minds that understand, and hearts that believe and obey. Father, do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit, we pray, and please bless me, we pray, that both what I say and how I say it would bring you glory and honour, and it would bring encouragement and blessing to each one of us. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Father, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the history of Christianity, the figure of Mary has taken on a far greater significance than she herself, I think, would have ever imagined. Especially the Roman Catholic Church, devotion to Our Lady, as she is called, is practically speaking even more intense than it is for Jesus. For instance, when the Catholic Church refers to the Immaculate Conception, they're not affirming that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's what all Christians believe. But that Mary herself was conceived without the stain of original sin. And so she is, for all intents and purposes, morally perfect, just as our Lord Jesus Christ was and is. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church has now officially recognised Mary as both a co-redeemer as well as a co-mediator alongside of Christ. If you ever go into a Roman Catholic Church, you will nearly always see a statue of Mary. And the thing to really look for is, or look at, is her feet because she is nearly always portrayed as treading on a snake. Why that's so important is because, as we already saw in the children's talk this morning, but in another way, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary is the one who is crushing the head of the serpent and not Jesus. Uh, That's a reference to, as we saw this morning from the Bible reading, Genesis 3.15, 
where the Lord says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the Latin Vulgate, though, which is the traditional translation of the Bible which the Roman Catholic Church uh, has used and still uses sometimes, it reads this, she will crush your head and you will strike her heel. In fact, if you take a look up at the screen, you'll see a photo inside a Roman Catholic church um, by some medical missionaries um, from my church that I was a part of that are serving in South America. It's quite shocking, isn't it? It really goes to show how central and significant a place the figure of Mary has come in Catholic religious practice and devotion. She's grown up, I think, to compete with and even replace the figure of Jesus. In my family, my own family growing up, my mum and dad used to be part of a, a small group that would meet each month to pray the rosary. And I myself used to wear what is called a scapula, which is sort of a double-sided cloth necklace. It's one on the front, one on the back, and it was to ensure Mary's help and protection. In fact, it was said that if you were wearing a scapula uh, when you died, then Mary's righteous intercession would guarantee you a spot in heaven. You would escape purgatory and you'd go straight past go on into heaven. When you come to the pages of the Bible, though, it is really quite surprising, especially for someone like myself who's an ex-Catholic, to realise just how few a times the figure of Mary is mentioned. In John's Gospel, for instance, she's only mentioned twice. Once, once at the scene of the wedding in Cana in Galilee, where Jesus performed his first miracle, where he turned water into wine, and then the other time is here at Jesus' death. So for the whole entire time in between, the figure of Mary is really almost completely absent or at least silent. She doesn't play a very big role in Jesus' ministry at all. Not only that, but he's probably even more significant. She is never mentioned in any of the epistles in the New Testament. That's a very significant omission indeed. Especially if our Lord did intend for her in any way to be a co-redeemer or a co-mediator. But probably the most significant aspect of all is that rather than calling her mother, or as was humorously said this morning, mummy, which is what you would expect, Jesus never did. Whenever Jesus addresses Mary in the Gospels, he addresses her as woman. So there's this obvious deliberate distancing that occurs, especially from Jesus. Now, the reason why I mention all that is because the saying that we're going to be looking at today, I think, is one of the most abused sayings of Jesus. Some people would think, I didn't even know it was there as one of the sayings of Jesus. But we'll get to that in just a moment. You see, it's one of the key texts that is used by the Roman Catholic Church to support the worship of Mary. 
Now, as you can see from your sermon outlines um, today, there's going to be a number of interpretations that we'll cover as to what this passage means, and they are really legion. The first is that Mary equals maybe the people of Israel and the figure of John, the faithful remnant that had stayed faithful to the Lord. Maybe that's what this passage means. That's what Jesus intends us to understand by it. I think most people would uh, just balk at this kind of explanation because it seems so far-fetched. But that is what some scholars have suggested. Mary is Israel, uh, John is the faithful remnant. Others have been even more specific and said that, well, maybe Mary is a symbol for the Jewish Christian um, believers, whereas John, John is representing the Gentile believers. Maybe that's it. This theory is even more far-fetched, though, when you realise that both Mary and John are Jews. So I don't really know how you can say that one of them represents Jews and one of them represents Gentiles. The confession of the Roman centurion, certainly, but not of John and uh, or Mary. The third type of explanation has become more popular of late, and it's that This is God's way of instituting a whole new creation as he did at the very beginning. Which means, according to this theory, Mary represents Eve and John represents Adam. But that creates more problems than it answers because Jesus doesn't say that Mary and John are to be husband and wife but that Mary is to be John's mother, whereas John is to be her son. But the most popular explanation in the Roman Catholic Church is that Jesus was instituting Mary as the church and John as the ideal disciple. And in so doing, he was creating a model for us on how all true believers were to relate to her from that time on. That's the Roman Catholic interpretation. Uh, This might seem a little bit confusing to people who have grown up in a Protestant church. So let me show you a picture taken from, this is a a catechism, uh, which you would be taught if you grew up in the Roman Catholic church to show you what I mean. Thanks. If you look, you don't have to look too closely to get the idea. As you can see from the picture, you can see that there's Christ on the cross. Um... Flowing out of his side come all the benefits of his death and it's flowing primarily through a priest and then it's flowing through the priest's hands, through the chalice and then significantly before it reaches the families below you all, it comes through the hands of Mary. You can see how she is responsible for dispensing or mediating the grace of Christ to everyone. So according to Roman Catholic scholars, then if you want to be a true disciple of Jesus, then you first of all have to come under the care, protection and provision of Mary. Uh, Let me just read to you a quote from a Catholic commentary on the Gospel of John. Quote, Our piety towards Mary is also in the position that she takes at the foot of the cross an index of the place she will occur or represent in our redemption. When I asked my own parents about this growing up, uh, my mum said this. This was her explanation of everything I've just said. If you ask your dad for something and he says no, what do you do? 
I ask you, mum. She said, exactly. And in the same way, when your heavenly father, you ask him for something and he says no, you go and ask Jesus' mother. Now, if you know in any way the Bible, you'll realise just what a blasphemous interpretation that is. Because what it's saying is that Mary is more gracious, more wise and more generous than God. The major problem with this whole line of interpretation, though, is that it's reading back, I think, into the text a meaning that Jesus never intended. And one can only imagine that Mary herself, the godly and humble woman that she was of faith, would be aghast at being elevated to such a position. Uh, when you take a look at the Bible carefully, which I hope we're going to do today, and um, some Roman Catholic commentators even acknowledge that it's actually not Mary who is being elevated here, but John. At the end of verse 27, if you have a look at it carefully, it says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So it's Mary that went to live with John, not the other way around, which means that she came under his care and protection, you see? Now, this has led other people to make the opposite conclusion, and that is, rather than Mary equaling the church, maybe she represents everyone who's a sinner. And because John is providing her with food and lodging, this beloved disciple's hospitality represents her salvation. There really are a bewildering array of explanations and theories that are put forth, aren't there? So, what's the right conclusion? Well, it might seem pretty obvious, but what Jesus is doing here is he's simply saying to his mother Mary that John is now going to look after her. And conversely, to his good friend John, that she is now his responsibility. And the point then, friends, is this, and I think it's pretty profound. Charity begins at home. Charity begins at home. What a great reminder that is for us as Christians. Sometimes we can be all spiritual and servant-hearted when it comes to church. We'll get here early and we'll put out chairs, but the real test of faith is how we behave at home when people are not looking. That just because Jesus is dying for the sins of the world here, doesn't mean also that he's oblivious to our needs. It's really, I think, that simple. But when you really stop and think about it, it's really not out of place, is it? I mean, many historians have observed that Jesus is following actually the first century legal practice that was required on occasions like this. And so this fits perfectly with the original setting because Jesus was legally caring for those who were closest to him. Now, this kind of explanation might not seem all that profound or spiritual to some, but let me, let me try to argue and persuade you of why it really is. 
If you'll take a look at your sermon outlines, you'll see that there are three things in particular that I think we can learn as a result of what Jesus says here to John and Mary. The first is regarding Jesus' compassion. There's a wonderful quality that is being demonstrated here that is Jesus' love and concern for other people. Which is all the more telling and significant when you consider that in the the midst of this intense suffering and pain, Jesus is caring for the needs of those that are closest to him. One author I was reading put it like this. He said, There is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. Jesus never forgot the duties that lay to his hand. On the opposite, we see the problem with the Pharisees, isn't it? They were so self-righteous and proud that Jesus rebuked them because he said that they had come up with this, this very pharisaical way of saying, well, look, mum and dad, whatever, whatever obligation, whatever duty, whatever responsibility I had to you is now Corban. That is, it's a gift devoted to God. So you see, I don't need to share my responsibilities to you as my mum and my dad because that, all of that responsibility, all of that devotion, that sacrifice, that service, that commitment, that's all now to God. And Jesus says to them, you hypocrites, you nullify the word of God, which is to honour your mother and father so that you can practise your self-righteous religion. Jesus was here quite literally doing the opposite, wasn't he? He was experiencing hell so that we could go for heaven, but he never forgot those who were around him. And yet in the midst of this excruciating sense of abandonment, he still has time to care for those that are closest to him. Such is the compassion and the concern that our Saviour has for those who are his. There's a great passage in Psalm 68 which says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. But the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? Especially if you've never been married. Or you've been married but are currently single again. The Lord is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. That is, those whom the, law, the, whom the world overlooks and forgets. The Lord God Almighty remembers. You might be feeling especially isolated and alone right now. But God wants you to know that you are not. That he is your defender and the God who loves you is mighty to save and is strong.
For in his loving providence, not only is he present with us, but he provides for us human companionship. He sets the lonely in families. He sets the lonely in families. It's part of the reason why it's so good to be part of a church. Because when our natural relatives might sometimes forsake us and abandon us, the people of God will act as his heart and his hands. It's also why it's so important that we strive to welcome those who have been estranged. That we welcome into our homes those who might not have any other place to go. Especially for those of us with families. When we do things like that, friends, we are acting in exactly the same way that Jesus treated his own friend and earthly mother. We are not only honouring God, but we are being truly Christ-like. The second point that I'd like to make follows on from this, and that is the challenge that he sets forth to both Mary and to John. When you stop and really consider it, there is something intensely personal about what Jesus is saying and doing here. I mean, to his mother, Jesus is gently but firmly telling her not to cling to him as her son. Any mother that's here knows what that means. Remember, at the very beginning, Mary was warned that a soul will pierce her own spirit too. In other words, we're not to be she's not to be defined by her loss or so defined by it that she fails to love and care for others. Now, that is an absolutely huge challenge to make. I can't think of too many things more heartbreaking than burying a child. But what Jesus is saying to Mary is there is more to do. There are people to look after, to nurture and to bless. That's a very powerful and challenging thing to say. Because, friends, we must never be so devastated by our sadness that we no longer seek to serve. You see Jesus' challenge? It's the same with the Apostle John. What Jesus is saying to him, oh, remember? You've got to remember James and John, the two sons of thunder. John was one of the disciples that wanted to be first. In fact, it's quite funny when you think about it. They'd asked their own mother to go to Jesus Right to ask him to say, can you let us do whatever we want? Give us whatever we want. And Jesus said, okay, what is it that you want? Oh, we want to sit at your right and your left. We want the glory. Looking up at the cross and especially the thieves on either side of him, one on his left, one on his right, I wonder if John then recognised what that meant. 
that glory comes through suffering, not just through positions of power. Remember how John, though John wanted to be great? That is, well, this is what it means to be great. It means to serve. Look after my mum. How incredible is that? This apostle that's been given the gospel now has been burdened by the responsibility of looking after a widow because Joseph by this time had died. According to church tradition, John and Mary lived in the same house in Ephesus until their deaths. There is something very poignant and far-reaching in what Jesus is doing here. He is giving to his beloved disciple a responsibility that, humanly speaking, would have really weighed him down. Oh, by the way, I think the reference to the beloved disciple is not, the, is not necessarily John's proud way of going, well, I'm the one Jesus loved. But he doesn't even tell you his name by the time he, read, by, by the time he writes the gospel. He has so humbled himself that his claim to fame is that he's loved by Jesus. That's it. He doesn't even refer to himself as an apostle, but as simply an elder. It would have definitely curtailed the freedom he might have hoped he might have had in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. How are you going to do that when you've got to care for a widow? God in his infinite wisdom and providence, as we see now in hindsight, does incredibly more than he could have ever imagined or asked especially when he's in solitary confinement on the island of Patmos, where he writes the book of Revelation. But the strange and wonderful thing with God is that caring for elderly parents or looking after extra children, please hear me, friends, is never a burden and never a hindrance to serving God. In fact, it's right where God has you. You are being more Christ-like there than you are being a missionary in Thailand. If anything, it's actually a living manifestation of what the gospel means. Of practically speaking, extending to others the service and the grace that has first been shown and given to you. When the Lord places you in that kind of situation, a terrible but glorious thing happens though. And that is all of the hidden and insidious idols that were hidden even from you are suddenly exposed. Idols of comfort, of control, of being a workaholic, of money, of materialism, of selfishness. Very hard to keep worshipping those idols and look after each other. All kinds of ugly expressions of sin come to the surface and are given expression through our anger and our frustration. That's the lesson John had to learn. That serving Jesus, that serving Jesus went hand in hand with serving others. 
In fact, later on, John himself would write in his first epistle, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. And the truth is not in us. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must love his brother. How apt that the Apostle John should be inspired by God's Holy Spirit to write those verses. He lived that. In fact, there's a saying in church history that at the end of his days, John was carried into church on a stretcher. He couldn't walk anymore. And all he would say to the congregation is, love one another. Love one another. And they'd say, why? It's like a grandfather that only has the one thing to say. Why are you saying that? He says, because that's all, that summarizes everything that the Lord has commanded us. Love one another. But you can't love unless you know one another. Unless you're in relationship with each other. All of which brings us to the third and final point, and that is of Jesus' commitment It's really easy to overlook this, but John's gospel is bookended with the two incidents, interestingly enough, involving Mary. The second is here, which we've just been considering, but the first is in John chapter 2, which involves Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. Now, if you just turn back to John chapter 2 with me and look at what Jesus says, especially in verse 4. On both occasions, Jesus never refers to Mary as his mother, even when he is directly addressing her. Instead, you'll notice he simply refers to her or says to her, dear woman. And he says, and then he says this in verse 4, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Interestingly, Mary responds by telling the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus goes on to perform his first miracle. And so the question is this. How can his time, or literally in Greek, his hour, not yet come and yet he immediately goes on to perform such a dramatic supernatural miracle? And the answer is that his time, literally again his hour, is not his really his life and all the extraordinary things that he's about to do, the time, the hour that he's referring to is his death. That's why in John 17 verse 1, Jesus begins his high priestly prayer by saying this, Father, the time, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. You see, all of Jesus' life has actually been pointing to his death. Right from the very beginning, it has been all about this very, very specific end. That he would die on a cross to make atonement for sin. That he is the true temple and that he would be destroyed and that only to be raised again in three days. That's what everything is pointing to. 
And it's at this time or this hour of his life, just before he dies, that he detaches himself from everything in the world. Which is why John says at the end of verse 27 now, notice this, that from that time, again, that hour, this disciple took her, Mary, into his home. Because this was the hour of salvation. And not even the precious relationship of a mother and her son could come between Jesus fulfilling the Father's will. Now you could uh, you still ask, but why does Jesus hand Mary specifically over to John? But again, I think the answer is found through a careful reading of John's Gospel. Turn back to John chapter 7, verse 5. It's only one verse, and we're simply told this, which is quite a staggering thing to think about. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. Mary believed in him, but his own brothers didn't, which means not only was Mary a widow, because Joseph has died and is no longer on the scene, but Mary is alone even in her own family in trusting in Jesus when the rest of her children do not. Now, there is a profound challenge for anyone who follows Jesus. And that is, you must love him more than anyone else. The order is this. Jesus, daylight, someone else. That's how big the gap is. More than parents, more than children... More than your own spouse, Jesus calls on us to have total commitment. And in the case of Mary, putting her faith in Jesus meant that she was ironically estranged from everyone else in her family. But what about you? Do you love Jesus more than anyone else? Can you relate to what Mary had to go through there? There's an enormous cost in following Jesus. But, as we know, there is also an even greater reward. Mark tells us, or Jesus tells us in Mark 10, that no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. When I decided uh, to follow Jesus and when I came to a, a biblical understanding of the gospel, some of you might laugh at this, but my mum thought I had been brainwashed and that I was in a cult. We had an Anglican once in my soccer team. And I said, Mum, what's the difference between Anglicans and Uniting and Presbyterians and Baptists and, and us? And she said, oh, don't worry about them. They're just people that wanted to get a divorce. And I thought, oh, that doesn't sound good. That's all I knew. So when I left the Catholic Church, you could imagine how difficult that was. So I got sent to a monastery to be deprogrammed. And through a traumatic set of circumstances, left 
I came home and I said to mum, I just can't do it. I just want to follow Jesus and I just want to trust what he says in the Bible. And she said, well, it doesn't matter what you do because you were born a Catholic. You were baptised a Catholic and you will die a Catholic. I thought, oh, great. Like, I'm locked in. I can't do anything. Now, please hear me while I believe in covenant baptism. And if you've been brought up in a Protestant church, there is only one baptism. But for me at that point, I thought in my youth, there's only one way forward I can see here for myself, and that is to get baptised. So one weekend, it was at Easter, I said to the church where I was associated with, I want to get baptised just so that I can say I'm following Jesus. And the pastor said, I think that's a good idea for you, knowing your whole story. I came home that weekend and I walked in the door and as soon as I walked in the door, I didn't say anything to anybody in my family. My mum said to me, what have you done? I thought, boy, I'm really in a... I'm really in a corner now because I, you should never lie. You should particularly never lie about baptism. So I said, well, I got baptised. And she said, today you have died and you are no longer my son. Now the interesting thing was that, is that I thought straight away I've done the right thing. Not because I hated my mum, I loved my mum but because all I could hear in my head was the verses of Romans 6, that we who have been baptised have been buried with him in baptism, united with him in his death. That's all I could hear. And I thought, well, now I can follow Jesus and Jesus alone. I think back to that, and as shocking and as sad as it still makes me, because I always loved my mum and we were close, Straight away I knew that God was with me and that he would never forsake me. What I didn't expect though is this. I didn't expect that there would be more than a few older women who would be such a blessing in my life. I didn't expect that. Who loved and cared for me in such a holy and pure way that it was just so special. I never expected that God would provide me with so many spiritual mothers. But that's how good and generous God is. He is the father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, and the one who sets the lonely in families. Let's then be this for each other. to not only look out for the fellow believer who is all alone, but to also cling to Jesus himself, because never will he leave you, never will he forsake you. Amen? To not let any other relationship on earth get in the way. For we do have a Father in heaven who has loved us with an everlasting love and promises in his word to never let us go. Let's pray. Father, as we've come before your word today, we have been humbled by it, we have been challenged by it, by the profundity of your words that you spoke from the cross. Lord, we are humbled because 
it exposes the idolatry that exists in our own hearts. Idols of comfort, of control, of materialism, of allegiance to the people and the things of this world rather than of you. Lord Jesus, you call on us to love you first and foremost, above and beyond anything else, such that nothing comes close. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll give us that grace to love Jesus and no one else in comparison. Lord, we pray also that because we love you, we would love those around us. Those whom the world might see as a burden, Lord, we know that you have placed that responsibility to be a blessing. We pray that we would serve one another just as you have served us. Thank you for hearing our prayers, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would fill us all by your Holy Spirit. Keep giving us insight into your word and help us to apply what we've learned today. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.